Greetings and welcome to the Logical Belief Ministries podcast. I'm your host, Jason Mullett. You can visit our website at logicalbelief.org. You can watch these podcasts on YouTube. You can search for and subscribe to our channel there. You can find us uh, on iTunes. Just search for Logical Belief. Uh, Both the audio and the video can be found at our website. Uh, Right there on the far right of the top menu, just go ahead and click on Podcast. Um, If you want to send me a word of encouragement or you have a question that you want to have answered on the air, uh, you can drop me an email at jason at logicalbelief.org. Uh, just be aware, by sending me an email, you are giving me permission to read it on the air. So, uh, today, what I wanted to discuss was in the uh, last episode of the podcast, I did make note and mention that I recently had a discussion with some Mormons. Um, I had recorded that conversation, and uh, I'm not going to make it available uh, on the air for legal reasons, but what I thought I would do is I would go through some of the topics of that discussion and also reference an article that I had written a while ago. I'm just going to go ahead and transition the screen here so you can see this. Uh, entitled Questions to Ask Mormons. And in fact, many of the things that we addressed in my conversation with uh, those Mormons uh, are actually in this article. So the one thing that I want to say about Mormonism is one of the things you're going to notice pretty quickly once you start engaging with Mormons is that they have a they have a very shallow theology. In fact, I even mentioned in the article that the thing that I've noticed is that Mormonism is just rife with logical problems. Um with uh, inconsistencies and self-refuting beliefs. And so Mormonism, from an apologetic perspective and a uh, perspective of defending it against the against it uh, with the truth of the Bible, is is much easier to deal with than, for example, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. Um simply the the mormon belief that you know god was once a man um that uh he did not eternally exist as god um these types of beliefs and claims are frankly just irrational uh they don't really have a god who is transcendent um they don't have a god that's immutable um and so th- this just creates a lot of problems from an apologetic perspective when it comes to if we don't have a creator who is who is transcendent and exists outside of creation in other words he exists within the universe himself once existed on a planet 
we have multiple issues here. We end up with an infinite regress. Uh, he he once worshipped a god himself, um, and that god once worshipped a god. They they were all elevated to godhood at some point. Now we got an infinite regress. We also have a universe that um, either eternally existed, um, and if it eternally existed, now we got the the time problem. Where how do you cross an infinite amount of time? Um, there's just so many issues. Uh, they don't have a creator who exists outside of creation, who transcends time and space, who created all things. And so, <clears throat> fundamentally, Mormonism just has it just has a just a lot of issues. Um, so, what typically ends up happening from my experience and what I've seen with other people that do apologetics with Mormons is Mormons quickly go to subjectivism. Did you pray about the Book of Mormon? Did you have the feeling? And that's, in fact, really where even my conversation with these two Mormons finally, you know, did end up at, which I very much expected it to. In fact, it started off pretty early um, in the discussion. Uh, they brought that up pretty quickly. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to go over about uh, five different points that occurred during the conversation uh, with these Mormons and and just let you know um, how I dealt with uh, the different issues that were discussed and how it was uh, it was a really good conversation. We, we talked for about an hour and a half. Often I think uh, when Mormons start uh, feeling opposition, uh, a lot of them tend to bail. These guys actually stuck around, which uh, I really appreciated. Um, and the the thing the thing I think that made a difference with that is I really just let them speak. I let them uh, talk about their position, you know, thoroughly state their position, uh, what they believed, and then I just went through and and just addressed what they said. Um, you know, let let them have the opportunity to, to to talk. Let them have have the opportunity to say what they want to say, but then go ahead and you know deal with it. Uh, what they started off with. Well, I'll just kind of uh, rehearse a little bit how the entire ordeal actually happened in the first place, and I would encourage those of you out there that are interested and have a desire to share the gospel with Mormons is. Uh, there's there's some things that you can do also so that you can have the opportunity to share the gospel with these uh, these lost people, and what I was have and have been doing is I have been getting onto the LDS.org website and engaging with Mormons through that website. They have a a chat feature built into their website which you can just chat with some Mormons and. I've gotten into some conversations. They typically, when you start really asking difficult questions to them, uh, from from my experience in this uh, chat feature they have on their website, is that uh, they'll just uh, say goodbye and and just leave the conversation. So I I did that for a while, and I was always completely upfront with who I was. I gave my always gave my full name, and uh, never tried to obfuscate myself in any way. But um, about four or five weeks ago, I emailed 
them after having a chat with some Mormons on their website. I emailed them and requested uh, that I, I wanted to have a Book of Mormon, and I gave them my address and asked them to mail me one. Well, about uh, two weeks ago, they showed up at our front door while I was at work, and my wife gave me a call and said, we've got uh, two Mormons here that want to talk to you, and they brought you a Book of Mormon. I said, well, fantastic. Um, <clears throat> invite them back to our house, and I'll have a discussion with them the next Tuesday. So that was uh, what we scheduled and what we planned. And so they showed up right on time and uh, invited them in and welcomed them into our house. And we just sat in our living room and I just uh, kind of let them open it up. I asked them some questions about where they were from. Uh, one of them was from Utah. I think the other one may have been from Nevada, if I remember correctly. And uh, so I just let them kind of start it off. They started off with Joseph Smith's vision, uh, eight, his 1820 vision of Heavenly Father. And uh, let me actually grab some of their material over here. So here's the Book of Mormon that they uh, they gave me. Uh, the first, let's see here, what was the first one that they showed me? One of the first pamphlets they gave me, I'm trying to actually find it here, they gave me two pamphlets. One was, uh, they were talking about, oh, here it is. You guys can see that in the camera there. We got a little bit of light glare there. Um, but uh, they they showed me that, and they said this was Joseph Smith's 1820 vision of uh, Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ. And I'll just uh, even read it here from History 1, 16 through 17. Um, Joseph Smith saw our Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ of this experience. He said, I saw a pillar of light exactly over my head above the brightness of the sun, which descended gradually until it fell upon me. When the light rested upon me, I saw two personages whose brightness and glory defy all description standing above me in the air. One of them spake unto me, calling me by name, and said, pointing to the other, This is my beloved son. Hear him. So I went ahead and let them... <coughs> Uh, give that information, and uh, then I just asked them uh, how they uh, resolved this. I said, now, doesn't that vision there say that Joseph Smith actually saw Heavenly Father? And they said, absolutely. So I just asked them, I said, as a Christian, my question would be is, is as I look at Scripture... I actually see that the Bible tells me that no one has actually seen the Father or, in fact, even can can see the Father. And I quoted them, First uh, Timothy 6, uh, 15 through 16. And by the way, this is question one on my article also. Um, and uh, it's it says here in First Timothy 6, well, that's actually uh, John six forty six. I had also quoted them that verse to them. It says, not that anyone has seen the Father except he is from God. He has seen the Father. This is Jesus speaking in John 6.46. And then in 1 uh, Timothy 6.15, um, it's speaking here of the Father. 
which he will display at the proper time, this beginning of verse 15, he who is blessed and the only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So I said here, it says that no one has ever seen or can see. Um, I asked them how they resolved this apparent contradiction with what Joseph Smith said that he had actually seen Heavenly Father. And uh, there were, I don't know if they'd ever been asked that question before because they didn't really seem like they were prepared for it, <clears throat> even though one of them had been doing this for about two years. Uh, but they didn't say much right away. And then they said that, uh, well, you know, we can be in a, you know, a particular state. You know, God can put us in a particular state so that we can actually see God and see the Father. And I said, well, that would actually still go against Scripture. <clears throat> Even your answer uh, says here uh, that no one has ever seen the Father or can see him. It doesn't say here there's a particular state we can be in that allows us to see uh, Heavenly Father. It's just that no man can see the Father. And they said, well, they, they brought up the fact that people in the Old Testament had seen the Father. And I said, well, you know, as a Christian, uh, what I believe is that it's what we call as a Christophany or theophany, a pre-incarnate um, vision or seeing of, of Jesus Christ. God the Son, the eternal Son, has condescended himself into his creation, and man has seen God the Son uh, incarnated and has seen uh, God the Son in <clears throat> a pre-incarnation form. Uh, for example, uh, Abraham by the Oaks of Amory, um, you know, most likely saw Jesus. Uh, we have Joshua, you know, saw the angel of the Lord, very likely Jesus. Now we have the same thing with uh, many other uh, people in the Old Testament. We have Isaiah's vision, we have Ezekiel's vision, and most likely uh, these were all pre-incarnate views of Jesus Christ. In fact, even the Apostle John, in writing John, I'm not exactly sure what reference, actually referenced uh, Isaiah's vision and, and attributed it to Isaiah having seen Jesus Christ, having seen his glory. That's in Isaiah 6. So, so that was the answer that I gave them, and they didn't really have a way to resolve this. Um, the <clears throat> next thing I took them to was what is actually question number seven on my article here, was I just asked them, I said, so, you know, here we have, we started off talking about Joseph Smith, talking about his vision. He, he claimed to be a prophet of God. And so I asked them if they had ever read the biblical requirements uh, for a prophet, and they weren't sure if they if they had, but I said, well, let's go ahead and take a look at that. And so they looked it up in in their scripture. Uh, th they were using the King James, but I went ahead and read it from the ESV and I asked them to read uh, Deuteronomy eighteen verses twenty through twenty two. And it says, but the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commended commanded him to speak, or speaks in the name of other gods. The same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, How may we know the word that the Lord has not 
we know the word that the Lord has not spoken. When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. So I asked them <coughs> here in Deuteronomy 18 verses uh, 20 through 22, you know, it says here that if a prophet speaks a word and makes a prophecy and it does not come to pass, he is not a prophet of God. So I asked them how they resolved uh, Doctrine and Covenants 84 uh, verse 1 through 4 where Joseph Smith actually predicted that the city of the New Jerusalem and specifically the temple would be rebuilt in the western boundaries of the state of Missouri within his generation. It says, which temple shall be reared in this generation. So my question for them was, this hasn't even happened yet today. So how is Joseph Smith a prophet using the biblical standard, a prophet from God, if he has this false prophecy? And um, their response was rather interesting. <clears throat> the, um, the, the, one, the younger guy actually said, well, have I ever heard of a dispensation? And I said, well, yeah, a dispensation is a, just a period of time. And um, he goes, well, you know, that's what that means. It says this temple shall be reared in, um, you know, in this dispensation. I said, well, I understand that's what you're saying, but that's actually not what the text says. Your text actually says that it will be reared in this generation. The people that Joseph Smith gave this to would have understood that Joseph Smith actually believed that in his generation that um, that the temple would be rebuilt in the western boundaries of the state of Missouri. And so uh, that does not resolve the problem at all. This is directly a prophecy made as has absolutely not occurred, and Joseph Smith therefore cannot be a prophet of God. There is no reason for us to fear him, to listen to him. In fact, if he would have been during the time of the Old Testament, he would have been stoned. He would have been put to death. So the next thing that we really got into, and we actually ended up spending quite a bit of time with, which I was very happy that this, this occurred, because one of the things that, <clears throat> that I think is of utmost importance whenever we talk to any particular non-Christian worldview is that we always have to focus on the gospel itself. And so we we kind of got into, and, and actually how this came up was uh, we started talking about, um, I, I think I just asked them a question as what they thought salvation was, or, or from Mormon theology, what was salvation? And one of them quoted second nephi twenty five twenty three just just quoted it themselves, which was actually a verse I wanted to bring up 
And they quoted it, for we know that it is by grace that we are saved after all we can do. And I actually jumped in at that point, and I actually told him, I said, oh, well, that's Second Nephi twenty-five twenty-three, And they were like, they, <laughs> they were pretty impressed that I actually knew that verse. I don't know if they'd ever encountered anyone that actually uh, knew parts of the uh, Book of Mormon. They said, wow, you, you, you definitely know quite a bit about the Book of Mormon. I said, well, actually, I don't know that much about it. I've only read uh, some sections of it, but I said, so I just do happen to know actually that verse. Um, and so I said, I, I want to actually talk about that verse. And I said, how would you as a Mormon resolve this verse where it says that we notice by grace that we are saved after all we can do? I said, how do you compare that to Ephesians two verse eight that says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. So how do you resolve that issue? Um, they made some some basic efforts to try to get around it, but there's just not really anything you can do. These are exactly antithetical. They're exactly opposite to one another. It's a different gospel. And I, I kept stressing that with them, is that they have a different gospel. Um, I, I told them they have a gospel of despair, uh, and I actually brought up uh, Moroni 10.32, and we read that one, and I'll give you their response to that one. That was rather interesting. Uh, this is actually question four on the article also, so this is something that you can use if you want to, uh, if you want to pull up this article and, and use it next time you talk to some Mormons, but in Question number four on the article, I have Moroni 10.32, and let me just read this. Yea, come unto Christ, and be perfected in him, and deny yourself of all ungodliness. And if ye shall deny yourself of all ungodliness, and love God with all your might, mind, and strength, then is his grace sufficient for you, that by his grace ye may be perfect in Christ. And if by the grace of God ye be perfect in Christ, ye may in no wise deny the power of God. So I asked them, I said, so in Moroni 10.32 here, it says that his grace is sufficient for us only after we deny all ungodliness. Deny yourself of all ungodliness. So I said, that's a, uh, that's a gospel of despair. I said, have you denied yourself of all ungodliness? And in fact, how do you, how do you resolve this verse, Moroni 10.32, with what the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 4, verse 5. And it says, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, not the uh, those who have denied all ungodliness, but in fact, uh, the one who believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And I also read to them Romans 3.28, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So I asked them how they resolved this, and they said, well, in Moroni 10.32, you know, what it's saying here is if, if you desire to deny yourself of all ungodliness, you know, if you want to. So I said, so you're not saying that you actually have to deny yourself of all ungodliness. 
you just have to have the desire to do that. And they're like, yeah, yeah, that's that's what it means. And I said, well, that's interesting because when I read the verse, it actually says that you must deny yourself of all ungodliness and love God with all your might, mind and strength. Then is his grace sufficient for you. Uh, he doesn't say here that you have to have the desire to do this. Uh, in fact, you have to actually deny yourself of all ungodliness. And so we just we kind of went back and forth there for a little while on on the different uh, renderings of, of of views of grace. And I just explained to them that if grace is not free, if grace, if grace is not a complete gift, uh, then it's not grace. And uh, and I said that really turns Paul's argument in the book of Romans completely on its head. Uh, because Paul makes the argument that if if grace is anything that is earned for anything that we do, then grace is uh, is a wage received. It's it's been earned, and grace by necessity must be free, completely free, not based upon anything that we have done. And in fact, that's Paul's uh, argument. He says, if it's by works, it's no longer grace. I I believe that's uh, Romans 10. I'm not exactly sure what verse that is, but but that's Paul's argument in the book of Romans. So so we had an interesting discussion there on on the difference, uh, uh, our different views of grace. And... um, and what I really challenged them at that point was I said, take the Book of Mormon and read John, the Book of John and Romans, and compare what the Book of Mormon teaches about salvation, about God, um, and compare that to what the Book of Mormon says and see that we're talking about a different God here. We're talking about a different plan of salvation. We're talking about something completely different. This is not the uh, this is not the same revelation. This is not from the same God. There's no way that that's possible. And the younger one uh, said that he would take my challenge and he would do that. Now the older one didn't really say anything about that. Um, but my hope and my prayer is is that he does do that. I have heard often of Mormons coming to the truth of the gospel simply by reading the New Testament. And uh, so that would be my prayer, that that would be what he would do. And that's what I would ask you to do. For any of you guys listening to this podcast, keep that young man in your prayer. Uh, Ask that God would bring him to repentance and faith, and he would do so through his reading of God's word and that he would he would actually do that and he would keep his commitment that he made uh, that he would do that so the next thing that I uh, I went to them and we did some uh, questioning on was I asked them if they affirmed uh, Lorenzo Snow's statement which is a, a very famous statement uh, statement made which all Mormons would affirm and I've used this before with Mormons Uh, I've asked them this question 
Uh, Lorenzo Snow said he was the fifth president of the LDS Church, said, As man now is, God once was, and as God is, now man may be. And they affirmed that. And also uh, quoted them Joseph Smith's statement in uh, the King Follett sermon, uh, We have imagined and supposed that God was God from all eternity. I will refute that idea and take away the veil so that you may see. So both of these statements by Lorenzo Snow and Joseph Smith both indicate that God was once a man, that we have the ability to become God. We can be glorified and um, brought up to the status of God. We have that potential. And Joseph Smith completely refuted that God was eternal at all, that he once had a beginning. Um, and so what I did is I took them to Isaiah 43.10, and I told them that uh, we, we read that verse. Um, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, neither shall there be any after me. Uh, and this is the verse I focused on the most, but you can also go to Isaiah 44, 6. I didn't bring this one up with them, but uh, I, I mostly focused on 43, 10. Um, but uh, Isaiah 44, 6 also says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last. Besides me there is no God who is like me. Let him proclaim it, let him declare and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from, the, from of old and declared it, and you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. And so this is a great verse to uh, <clears throat> to point them out that they actually believe that there was gods before God. And God himself says that he doesn't know of any. So they would, and Joseph Smith must claim to know something that God does not know himself. Uh, the one verse I did bring up also with them was Psalm 90, verse 2. It says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So I asked them how they resolved, Isaiah 43, 10, that before me no God was formed, nor shall there be after me, and Psalm 90, verse 2, that from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Um, and how they compared that to um, to Joseph Smith and Lorenzo Snow's statements. And, you know, there's just really no forthcoming answer for this. Uh, they didn't uh, um, even make much of an attempt uh, to uh, even address that. So I just told them they, they're obviously worshiping a different God than we are. They're worshiping a God who was once a man um, and who was not from eternity God. Uh, Mormonism would teach that Jesus is uh, Lucifer's brother. So they just, they don't even have, there's, and this is something I talked about back when I talked about Jehovah's Witnesses, but whenever you deny the triune God of Scripture, your gospel and everything just collapses. You cannot have any sort of consistent gospel once you start denying the ontological nature of God himself uh, it just it just collapses uh, that's why 
whether it's oneness Pentecostalism or, or whatever it is, they cannot have a consistent view of the true gospel of grace taught in Scripture. You just you never see it. Um, and that's because whenever you have those perspectives, the gospel collapses. Uh, the gospel itself is very reliant upon the triune nature of God himself. Uh, we have God the Father giving a particular people to the Son, the Son being sent to redeem these people and to die for these people and be a ransom for them. And then we see the Holy Spirit within time coming and applying that salvation and sanctification in the lives of those people. And so we see the economy of the triune God, the persons of the triune God working together and functioning together in the salvation of God's people. And once you eliminate that, once you don't have a God as Scripture defines him, you just you don't have a gospel any longer. And so that's why the gospel of grace is always denied by all of those who deny the eternality the triune nature of God. You you just don't have a true gospel anymore. Um, so so we yeah we covered uh, about uh, four to five different things. Uh, Joseph Smith and his vision, um, seeing the Father. Uh, actually, I want to I'm going to jump back and I'm going to bring up something on that one. I, this was not something that was brought up in this particular discussion, but. Uh, you may get this if you bring this up, and, and these guys didn't do this, but I've had Mormons in the past uh, bring this up uh, to me when I challenge them that no one can see the Father, and I quote, you know, First Timothy 6.15 or John 6, verse 46. And what they've, uh, what they've said is that, well, Stephen in the book of Acts saw the Father. And the first time I got this, I, was, I wasn't quite prepared for it, but we actually, I went to the text and looked at it. And uh, the text says that uh, he saw the son, saw Jesus standing by the throne uh, with the, and, and beside the glory of God. It doesn't say that he actually saw the Father. He saw the glory of God, but he did not see the Father. And so it's simply an assumption on their part that because um, the text does not say that he saw the father so uh that that does not that is not an inconsistent but just be prepared for that uh and and challenge them right back with that and just say that uh the text does not say that he saw the father he simply saw the glory of god um so one of the last things that they uh brought up and that the the older elder that was part of the group brought up was it was kind of interesting he uh he took a bible and he put it on our coffee table and he said well the thing that we have to understand is that he said the way that i like to describe this is that the bible is like you know if you put a nail here in the one uh corner of the bible you know it just rotates around nobody can get you know uh, you know, we're all going to wonder what does it really mean. We're all going to have different interpretations, and it's just it's just going to rotate around. We can't get any sort of consistency. And he said, um, 
what the Book of Mormon is, is the Book of Mormon comes along and it's a nail on the other side and it, it tacks it down and it, uh, and it, you know, puts the Bible where it belongs and so that we can actually properly understand it. And, uh, so I thought that was, uh, an interesting, uh, thing to say. So the way that I actually responded to that was, I was like, well, you know, I said, I, I would, I would actually, uh, you know, have to disagree with you on that. I would actually say that there is uh, 40 nails. There's 40 authors, 40 plus authors in this book. And so this this book has 40 nails in it. And it's it's very solidly nailed down. We know exactly what it means and what it says. And we can know the truth uh, through uh, this text. And uh, he... I don't know if he'd ever heard that before, but uh, the, he didn't really have a response for that. So uh, they did go to, they asked me, uh, you know, I should pray about the Book of Mormon. And uh, and so I, I actually took them to, uh, well, actually, I'll, I'll kind of jump back a little bit. They actually quoted James 1.5, which I expected them to actually do this. And they said, you should, you know, you should pray about the Book of Mormon because in James 1, 5, it says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all uh, without reproach and it shall be given to him. So I said, well, I said the, the issue that I would have with you asking me to do that would be is that why would I pray to God when he's already given me his word? He's given me his word in the 66 books of the Bible. And if something comes along that contradicts his word, why would I pray about that to God and ask him if something that contradicts his word is true? I said, I don't think that that's very wise. I said, James 1.5 is talking about asking God for wisdom. It's not asking, it's not saying that we should pray to God to ask him if things that contradict his word are true. And so I, I then took them to 1 John 4, 1, and I read that, and I said, uh, it says in 1 John 4, 1, it says, uh, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. So I asked them, I said, how would you know whether Joseph Smith or the spirit that gives you your burning in the bosom is truly a spirit from God? As said here in 1 John 4, 1, it tells us to test them. And we test them by God's infallible word. And I said, uh, you know, that would be my challenge to you. On, on the other hand, is not to pray about something to see if something that contradicts the Bible is true. But instead, we should test claims outside of the Bible with the unfailing and infallible word of God and see if they compare to this revelation and whenever they contradict that revelation, it is not from God. And so that's how I address their um, uh, their burning in the bosom <laughs> uh, pragmatic, su subjective uh, place that they typically go and most Mormons go to uh, when uh, when trying to defend their position. Because really, you know, Mormonism is 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 really just indefensible. It's uh it's much much easier to deal with Mormonism 
on a from a biblical perspective uh, and from a examination for consistency it is much easier to deal with mormonism than really almost whether it's roman catholicism or uh, jehovah's witnesses or any other pseudo christian uh religion it's it's just much easier to deal with mormons from from my experience i my my wife has uh some of her family uh that are actually lds are mormon and i've had some conversations with uh with one of them and uh and so from my experience you know dealing with with um now actually we had a conversation with another one too uh through facebook uh one of one of them is uh right now on on a mormon mission they're an older couple and uh so we've had some back and forth dialogue through facebook with them they actually contacted us first they had written something on my wife's uh facebook wall about mormonism so uh we went back and forth with them a little bit but they um they they quickly uh bowed out we just you know we we pray for for these people they they're so deceived and that's what we need to do we need to be on our knees we need to pray for these people we need to pray that god brings them to the knowledge of the truth that he opens their eyes and he opens their hearts and their minds to see and understand the truth uh it's something that uh in sunday school the other day in church we were discussing some of this about about giving a defense for the faith and and showing people uh, the truth of the gospel and the word of God. And just one thing that I brought up is that is that proof is different than persuasion. We can prove to a Mormon, we can prove to a Jehovah's Witness uh, the truth of the word of God. We can prove the truth of the deity of Christ. We can prove the truth of the eternality of God. We can prove the truth of the gospel of grace. It's taught in scripture. We can prove these things but proof is different than persuasion, and that's because persuasion belongs in the hands of God's Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit that that brings people to the point of persuasion. And so we simply give the proof, we give the truth, because it glorifies God. And the truth is the way that God has determined uh, from all eternity to, to bring about salvation to his people. And so that's why we go out, we just proclaim the truth. We don't need to be afraid of any part of the Bible. We can give anyone any part of the Bible. And we know that uh, God can use that to bring about salvation in their life. Uh, Recently, a friend of mine who's an atheist was asking me about uh, theodicy, the problem of evil. And what did I do? I took him to Romans 9. I read him Romans 9. And that was my answer to him. And... See, I don't have to be afraid of any part of the Bible. I can use any part of the Bible. Uh, I haven't scared him away from salvation. Uh, he, If God opens his heart to the truth, he will believe the truth. And so I can be fully, uh, give the full truth and not have to uh, cover any of it up because we will scare them away for eternity. Not going to happen. They are saved by the truth of the gospel. So that is all I have for today. I uh, I hope that that was helpful uh, to you. 
Uh, you can go ahead and find that article on our website. You can just go to the uh, search and just search for questions to ask Mormons. Or you can, on the right-hand side of the website, uh, we have different website categories. And uh, you can go ahead and just click on Mormonism there. So I hope this was of some benefit to you. God willing, we'll be back with you next week. I'll probably have a testimony from Wojciech that we'll play for that. And hope Don't to see you then. God bless. We'll not inherit God's kingdom. And through Adam's offense.